Welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Brody, and today I am happy to welcome hymn writer Mary Louise Bringle. Mel Bringle is professor of religious studies at Brevard College in North Carolina and a past president of the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada. My interview with Mel was conducted in Dallas, Texas in July 2019. Welcome, Mel. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Ben. It's really good to be here. Mel, I wonder if you could start by sharing about your earliest memories of hymns or congregational singing, and how did your childhood experiences shape your vocation as a hymn writer? My earliest experiences, I think, date to my family life. When I was growing up, my parents insisted that we have family devotionals every morning. And so my sister and I, she being a year and nine months older, would pile onto their bed in their bedroom and we would have a scripture reading and maybe sing a hymn and say a prayer. And without knowing what was happening, through those I got hooked on liturgy such that when I was old enough to write, I started putting together a Christmas morning devotional program for the family. And I would type out little individual liturgies with what scripture was read and then what hymn would be sung. And by this time, I had been taking piano lessons so I could accompany us on the (laughs) piano. And this became a a sort of ritual act that preceded the opening of the presents on Mm. Christmas morning. And then I, I sang in children's choirs. Uh, we had to sort of audition, I guess, for children's choir, and I may have been five. And all that meant was sitting on the piano bench next to the choir director, and he would play a note and ask us to try to match pitch, or is this note higher or lower? And he, I was a very shy child, so to try to make me feel more comfortable, he asked me when my birthday was. And I told him when it was. July 31st. And he said, oh, that's my birthday too. Well, I was immediately smitten because this man and I (laughs) shared the same birthday. And so I hung on his every word thereafter and went faithfully to choir practice from age five up through senior high school. And that has been a profoundly shaping influence. Oh, wow. I think it's so fun to look back at those little little things, that same birthday that was that thing that maybe, maybe... It kept you going, or yeah, yeah, that little you. providential, that coincidental thing yeah. that that yeah, it, it's even. I did not, of course, grow up thinking I was going to become a hymn writer, yeah. or even thinking that I was going to major in religious studies or go on in the church. But when I look at my life retrospectively, everything seems to fit that trajectory. Yeah. So when I started taking piano lessons, one of the things that my piano teacher insisted on was that I spend my summers practicing sight reading Mm. out of a hymnal, Mm. which meant that I was playing through all the hymns in the old red Presbyterian hymnal, the 1955 hymn book, which was great practice on one level, but at another level it's probably a very bad thing to do if you're going to be a worship planner later in life because you know every hymn yeah. and so you mistakenly assume that everybody knows this <laughs> hymn which is not always the case. Yeah, that's great. Tell us a little bit about your faith journey. My faith journey began with this kind of early unquestioning piety mm. with family devotionals and church and Sunday school and stayed that way up until about junior year in high school when I started uh, raising theological and philosophical questions in that sort of arrogant way that one does at that age, thinking I might have been the first person ever to notice the problem of pain and suffering. And 
At the same time, I had gone to a, a summer program on a college campus and read a lot of French existential literature. So I was reading Camus and Sartre, and the world was meaningless, and there was pain. And so this generated a, a complex of theological questions for me that put me on the side of agnosticism, at least. Mm. I think surely maybe atheism, although I'm not sure I ever really went that hardcore. And then when I got to college as an undergraduate, had to take a religious studies mm -hmm. class as part of the general education curriculum, sort of sneered at it from my intellectual sophistication, uh, but took it because it was a requirement, and it completely exploded all of my preconceptions about right. what religion was. And instead of being this set of rote doctrines that one had to assent to unquestioningly, it became a journey of questioning and seeking and experiencing the dimension of depth mm. in all of reality. Mm. And I got hooked on that, and that won me back to a kind of second naivete mm. of faith. Yeah, that's great. Tell me about how you first came to write hymns. This is a really good story. I don't know that all hymn writers have a good origin story, but I had been teaching for many years at St. Andrew's Presbyterian College in eastern North Carolina. And I had a series of brothers in my classes who were all very musical. And they invited me to sing with their sort of family music group and because I was the only one that could play piano so I would play piano and we we sang together and a few years after they graduated I got an email from one of them who said Mel great news I'm getting married and I know what I want you to give me for a wedding present and I thought if every student that I ever taught or even <laughs> sung with wanted a wedding present I would be broke on yep. my teacher's salary. But what he wanted was for me to write an original hymn text mm. for him to compose a setting to mm. and to give it as a gift to his bride-to-be and sing it at the wedding. Huh. And fools rushing in, I had never <laughs> written a hymn text or thought about writing a hymn text. A addendum to that in a moment. So without knowing what I was doing, I wrote the text, sent it to him, he composed a setting for it. And then I was invited to come to the wedding. The wedding was in Atlanta in a big steeple church. Don Saliers was on the organ. I got to go down front with the bridal party. The whole congregation was singing and the organ was playing. And it was such a resplendent experience mm -hmm. that I decided I really want to do this some mm -hmm. more. Now, the addendum is I tried to figure out why he would have thought to write me out of the blue and ask for a hymn text. And I realized two things. One is that during his time as a student at the college, I had written parody stanzas for the alma mater, oh. <laughs> lampooning various people in administrative <laughs> positions. And we sort of sang them sub rosa as our critique. And I also, in a church history course that he took, had little hymns for heretics that I'd made up. Again, parody stanzas, yeah. just to try to help people understand, you know, someone's in the body with Jesus. And, <laughs> and so I gather he figured if I could write 
parody hymns, maybe I could do the real thing. <laughs> wow, what a great story! Yeah, did that is that hymn one that's uh, been published? Is that that hymn has been published, not with his setting. It's in my first collection, the okay. Joy and Wonder. Uh, to I think it's to a Wally Wally. Okay, in that, in that collection. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. What a great story. What or who has influenced you? Why do you write hymns? The biggest influence, I would have to say, was that choir director Hmm. with the same birthday as mine, J. Franklin Pethel, who was an absolutely superlative musician. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of the scripture that I know, I know by heart from having sung it in anthems in choirs. The hymns that I know, knowing how to read parts, a lot of music theory that I'm know enough of to write texts that marry with tunes comes from my experiences singing in church choir. Hmm. Hmm. That's great. What process do you follow when writing? Here I should also name another really important influence for me, without whom I would not be a hymn writer today, at least not of the, the sort of magnitude of work that, that I've done. Two other people. After I started writing hymns and thought, I really want to do more of this, Sally Ann Morris was recognized by the Hymn Society as an emerging composer. <laughs> Sally Ann happened to be an alumna of the college where I taught. And she was coming for an alumni weekend, and I had read in the Presbyterian Outlook that she had received this award. And I thought, well, if she, she could give me some tips <laughs> on how to move forward writing hymns. So I was at a gathering for the alumni at this institution where I was teaching. I went over and introduced myself, and we chatted for a while about her hymn writing. And she said, well, you know, if you're really serious about writing hymns, you should join the Hymn Society. I didn't know there was such a thing as the Hymn Society. I said, if you'll just excuse me for a minute, and she was talking with some other people, and I literally exited the lobby where the reception was, went around the corner to my office, logged onto my computer, found the Hymn Society, joined online, turned around, and walked back. (laughs) And then she said, uh, you know, once you're a member of the Hymn Society, if you want to become known in the hymn world, you should enter some of their competitions. Mm. That's the way you make a name for yourself. So when I got my first edition of the stanza, I saw that there were three competitions running. And I entered those competitions, and I won those three competitions in a row that first year, one of which was the Hymn Society's competition for a millennial text, because this was 1999. This is a text to mark the turn to the year 2000. And the winning text was going to be sung at the annual conference in Boston in the summer 2000. So I thought, well, I've got to go to that conference. There happened to be a hymn writer workshop scheduled for the week prior to the conference on the campus of Boston University. And I signed up to go to that as well. So first night of the conference, I'm sitting at a table roughly like this one, and there's a woman sitting across the table from me, and we're introducing ourselves around, and she said, "Uh, hello, I'm Ruth Duck. And I almost fell out of my chair because I had been reading and admiring her work in liturgy for years. And then we're getting to the second influential person, William Rowan, who was there working with the composing track. 
but he had just begun a project of writing what he called hymns without words hmm. because he just wanted to experiment with composing in different musical forms and dance forms and odd meters because he was convinced that interesting things would happen if we broke out of the squareness of common meter and 8787D. Yeah. So he presented this collection of tunes that had no texts. And I fell in love with the process of putting text to tune. Huh. Wow. And I found that this is the process that works for me better than anything else. Yeah. That if there is an evocative tune and I can sit down at the piano and you know, sight reading enough from early piano lessons that I can play it through and just keep playing it and humming it and praying through it. And mm -hmm. I would find that magical moment when I was no longer humming but I was actually singing words. Huh. Huh. And so I'd quickly put down the words, and it might be, you know, the last two measures of the third staff, but I would have words there, and then words would pop up for another place. And then by that point, I would say, oh, okay, so this is a hymn about, yeah, yeah. Right? and once you know what it's about, then you can do the work with uh, biblical concordance and find other passages or sort of gather images around that. <laughs> but ultimately writing a text to fit the little inspirational snippets into a sort of seamless progression. So I, I really think if I hadn't been introduced to that process of creating through William Rowan's work, I would have written a few texts and maybe called it quits. Uh, wow. What a fascinating story. I, it strikes me that that's opposite of uh, what I think I often hear from, from hymn writers, which is um, I, I write my text and maybe thinking of a common uh, uh, a common tune or something and then it gets sent to and then sent to a composer and then they create the music but uh, it seems rare to me that a composer occasionally but but rare that a composer just writes a tune and then seeks words for it or... it's, it is rare it it's creates some challenges. For example, when I get commissions, and particularly when I'm commissioned with a composer. So Sally Ann Morris, whom I mentioned earlier, and I have gone on to do a number of collaborative pieces, but when we're commissioned to do something together, there's always that little challenge of who's going to blink first. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. And we found a really good way of working together that if she doesn't have a tune, I can at least say, well, is there a meter yeah. that you're interesting in, interested in working with? Or she may have just a fragment of tune, and that will be enough that I can then write several lines of text and send it back to her, and then she can fill in the tune. Yeah. So it really becomes a collaborative process through which the tune and the text emerge sort of hand in hand, rather yeah. than one getting fully formed and then the other one getting added on yeah, as an afterthought. That's great. It's, it strikes me that in that sort of partnership, you really need to know know that partner uh, maybe better than you would in if you're just sending a text or if, if uh, you know if it's just kind of one person does their piece and then hands it off to the other. And it certainly helps if you know each other well and and can take some risks yeah. and can try something out. And if you know if I write something and Sally says there are too many too many syllables in that line. Yeah. Before she's even put music to it, she just says, you know, musically, I, I, I need... So I can work to kind of narrow it down. Another thing that I find is that the more metrically odd 
the tune, the easier it is for me to write mm. text, yeah. too. So, uh, for example, last week, Sam Young sent me a tune that he had that was orphaned and had no words, and it was 4454D. Which was a joy to write for, and when I sent it to Michael Silhavy at GIA, he said, boy, Sam gave you a real challenge with that tune. It had not occurred to me that that was a challenge. Yeah. The challenge would have been getting you know, common meter doubled <laughs> yeah, to yeah. work with. It's much easier to be creative when you're given sort of a box within which you have to work. Yes. yes. It seems to me that unusual meter is, a, is an easier box to work in than the maybe the bigger, uh, broader common meter box or right, right. Have you ever tried playing tennis without a net? Yeah, it's no fun <laughs> at all. Yeah, you know, if if everything counts, it doesn't work. So yes, that kind of structure is very generative of, mm. of ideas, of texts for me, and also just the affect. Yeah, you know, a, a good composer can write just a snippet of melody that will convey a mood, and and. I think the heart is really where my texts come from yeah. much more than the head. So yeah. if something touches my heart and moves me deeply, then it's almost as if I have to fall in love with the tune. Yeah. And yeah. once I'm in love with the tune, then I want to live with it and I want to take good care of it and I want to to do homage to it and mm. do it justice. Mm. And that really inspires and provokes me to, to work more at polishing the craft. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. What do you see as the role of hymns or congregational singing in worship? I think it really is that heart element. Mm. Yeah. Although hymns can teach doctrine and should clearly focus on doing good theology, hymns have that added benefit that they can sink in more deeply, mm. partially through the poetry of the words, but really through the power of the music. Mm. A good tune can take a pretty average text and make it deeply resonant, mm -hmm. deeply meaningful. So I think in worship, one of the things that, that song in general does, or music, it doesn't even have to be worded music, can, can be to, to touch and open the heart and move people in a way that may even be below rational thought, mm -hmm. but still can be very profound. What, one of the things that I've said sometimes is that a good tune softens the soil mm -hmm. so that the seed can germinate. Oh, that's good. And so, you know, if the sermon plants a seed, if it falls on stony ground, as <laughs> yes. we know, it does not flourish. But if there has been some good spade work by the music, then the ground is ready and receptive, and then the roots can take hold. Mm -hmm. That's good. I love that. I love that image. I think that's a, that's powerful. What today is most encouraging to you in the landscape of congregational singing and worship? It is an absolute delight to see the diversity of song mm. that the church is now experiencing. That in addition to strophic, square, metered hymns in four-part harmony with mm. solid organ accompaniment, which is, which is extremely valuable and I never, never would want to see that go away. But in addition to that, we have 
songs with Latin rhythms and songs with African drumming mm. and songs of contemporary praise and worship and songs with simple melodic lines from Asia and repetitive chants from Teze. Just this vast array of musical genres mm. that can touch and move people in so many different ways. I think it's the really exciting dimension yeah. of current congregational song. It's really, um, I, we should mention that you were the... Um, chair of the hymnal committee for uh, Glory to God, the, the PCUSA hymnal came out in 2013. 2013, yes. And, uh, but I think it's fascinating. That you mentioned the 1955 red hymnal. Yes. Comparing the contents of those two hymnals there, uh, I mean, just the, the, diverse, the rich diversity of music in, the, in, in recent denominational hymnals are, uh, is just uh, so wonderful and, and impressive breadth and languages and so much there that, that the church at least the Western American church had not been singing in previous generations. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny when you look at some reviews of earlier hymnals. There was a Presbyterian hymnal for youth that came out in the 1950s as well. And it talks about our impressive array of international song. And, of course, what it means is songs from Germany and the Netherlands yeah. and Great Britain. And, and that, too, is part of our global heritage, not to be dismissive at all. But our understanding of global song has certainly gotten far richer yeah. and and it is exciting to see all the variety in glory to god which i will say has been remarkably well received mm -hmm. by the denomination yeah. the churches have been far more receptive than i had ever dared to hope they would be yeah. of that resource yeah that's great what today most concerns you about congregational singing or uh, um, um, the role of uh, of music, hymns, and worship? I'm, I'm concerned, and this is not simply a concern about congregational song, it's a concern about the health of the church mm. itself. So many of my students, and I teach undergraduates, so by and large 18 to 22 year olds, are in the category of the nuns. Yeah. It's not that they're as I was, that they have had or un undergoing a period of disenchantment with the church. They've, they've never met the church. Yeah. They've never gone to worship. They don't know what a hymn is. They're no fault of their own. So uh, they mistake the word hymn and the word hymnal and don't understand that they're yeah. two different things. Uh, they don't understand, again, through no fault of their own, what congregational song is. So we have a convocation service on campus, or we have a baccalaureate service prior to commencement. And some person of an old school tradition crafts the liturgy for that service, and it involves at least two strophic hymns. And I'm sitting with the faculty up on the stage looking out at a sea of the senior class, and maybe two of them are singing along, and the rest of them are standing there mystified by what this is, <laughs> why people are singing this, how they know the words or the tune, or you know, why we should bother. <laughs> I don't know that it would be substantively different if we had a praise band yeah. on stage yeah. leading it. This is just not, in my context, a generation that has grown up singing sacred song of any kind. Yeah. And, and I think that's in part because the denominations themselves tend to be losing membership, at least the mainline Protestant churches. Yeah. So that's, that's a very deep and profound concern. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know... 
what the state of the denomination will be going forward. I don't know that there will be future denominational hymnals created, that there will be a need for them. I don't know what the current generation of students will have in their memory banks when they get to their senescence and remember nothing else except the songs that they grew up singing. I don't know what those songs will be. It may well be that there are some out there, and I just don't know that repertoire. But I certainly know that my generation, the generation slightly older than me, and then your generation being younger than I, have a body of song that we grew up with that will accompany us yeah. as we transition to the next life, whatever that may be. And and I'm fearful that that mm. is passing. Mm. Mm. If in a hundred years, only one hymn of yours was found in congregational song mm-hmm. repertoire, which one would you like it to be? Well, there's a question about which one I would like it to be and which one I think it might be. I'd love to hear your answer to both of Okay, <laughs> so the one that I think it might be comes to me as a surprise, mm-hmm. and it's my hymn, When Memory Fades. Mm-hmm which is a hymn that talks about Alzheimer's and aging and the loss of memory and the frailty that we experience as we grow old as caregivers and affirms that in and through all that, God's memory is unfading and God's arms are unfailing and we are continually upheld in the mind and heart of God. Uh, That hymn seems to have touched a nerve. Mm. I thought it was intensely personal, which it was, and I had written it for a friend whose parents were going through that particular set of challenges. It had not occurred to me that it would find its way into denominational hymnals, but it has, and anywhere I go where people have encountered that hymn, it's one that they mentioned to me and called to mind. So much as I would like to think that that in a hundred years time medical science will have conquered mm-hmm. the problems mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's and dementia, I, it is still inevitable that memories will fade in some fashion yeah. and arms will grow frail and I don't think we will ever tire of the affirmation that we are held in God's heart. Yeah. So you know, if I could predict one that might be so fortunate as to remain, uh, I think that might be it. Hmm. The one I would really love to see, my personal favorite, is the hymn Light Dawns on a Weary World, hmm. which is one that I wrote to one of William Rowan's Tunes Without Words. Hmm. That um, I actually wrote it at a hymn society conference huh. in 2002. He had come and found me at the conference waving this document the air saying I've written a tune that you are going to love (laughs) and so we raced all over the conference grounds trying to find a room with a piano where he could play it for me and he played the tune for me and I did I mean as I Mm. said really to write a text I have to fall in love and I fell in love with that tune Mm. so I carried it back to the Red Roof Inn where (laughs) I was being housed for that particular conference in Independence Missouri and got out the Gideon Bible and the bedside table and started sort of thumbing through it and writing words. And I took a text to him the next morning, wow. that wow. morning prayer, and we sang it together. And that 
because of that process, because of the role he has played in my life, because mm-hmm. of that tune, and because the text draws from my favorite book of the Bible, which is Isaiah, yeah. for that panoply of reasons. That's the piece that I would really like to have last. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. If I got to give a vote, mm-hmm. it would be for... Um, uh, your Romans, um, oh, shall tribulation, shall tribulation or Romans distress? Eight. Yeah, I just think that's such a such a wonderful um, combination of text and tune, where the rhythm just so perfectly matches and up. There's a wonderful story to that one. As oh, well. I'd love to yeah, hear. Yeah. It. So, so it's a Sally Morris tune. She called it her loser tune <laughs> because she had written it for another text in a tune writing competition. And it did not win mm. for reasons that baffle me because it's absolutely glorious tune. So she was coming to the mountains to go fly fishing, and frequently when she would do that, she would drop off at my house and sit down at the piano and play me recent tunes that she had. Mm. And she was coming to my house on a particular morning when shortly before she arrived, my beloved cat, who I think at that point was 18 years old, went, became paralyzed Mm. in her hind legs, Mm. could not move, could not do any of the things that kitties, cats need to do, couldn't Mm. eat, couldn't drink, couldn't use the litter box. And so I called our local vet who makes house calls Mm. to have the vet come that afternoon and anesthetize the the cat, Mm. euthanize the cat. And so Sally came to the house and could immediately tell that there was something not quite right. Yeah. I mean, I was tearful. And she said, do you want to do this anyway? And I said, no, yes, that's, you, you're all the way here. Let's do it. So she played this tune among others. And I particularly like the tune. And at that time, there was a little musical figure that repeated of four notes. And I was thinking to myself, what are the four syllables mm-hmm. I would most want to hear repeated to me? And what came to me instantly was not even death, mm-hmm. not even death, mm-hmm. which took me to Romans 8, what can separate us from the love yeah. of God in Christ. And when I took Romans 8 and put it next to that tune, it was as if they were meant for each other, because shall tribulation or distress, shall persecution fire or sword metrically exactly fit that tune that she had written. So I sent her the words really the next day. The sequel to the story is Sally had played the tunes, we had talked, she had left, I went back to the room where the cat was resting, the cat stood up, jumped off the chair, walked to the litter box, did what cats should do, walked to the food dish, ate, drank water, and was healed. So, I mean, obviously not forever, but was given uh, a further lease on life. So when the vet came, we simply had the vet check the cat out, but but the cat was spared on that occasion. So that's the sort of cat resurrection (laughs) hymn, but it it was Mm -hmm. a deeply important tune for me at that time because it helped reaffirm that really nothing yeah. can separate us. And the, and I think the power in that text and tune compa, compa, um, combination <laughs> combination is is that repetition that uh, nor even uh, or not, not even nor not even, even death. death. Yeah. Not even death. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I wonder if I could ask you um, 
would you be willing to to read uh, your your text for when memory fades? Sure. I doubt I need to read it. All right, or recite it. Yes. When memory fades and recognition falters, when eyes we love grow dim and minds confused, speak to our souls of love that never alters. Speak to our hearts by pain and fear abused. O God of life and healing peace, empower us with patient courage by your grace infused. As frailness grows and youthful strengths diminish in weary arms that worked their earnest fill, your aging servants labor now to finish their earthly tasks as fits your mystery's will. We grieve their waning, yet rejoice, believing your arms, unwearied, shall uphold them still. Within your spirit, goodness lives unfading. The past and future mingle into one. All joys remain, unshadowed light pervading. No valued deed will ever be undone. Your mind enfolds all finite acts and offerings held in your heart. Our deathless life is one. Thank you. Mel, I'd like to finish with five questions that I ask uh, each person that I interview. First, which hymn has most shaped your faith? I think I would have to say, and I, the reason I hesitate is because the first line is not in inclusive gender language, but the hymn has played such an important role in who I am as a believer, and it's John Greenleaf Whittier's Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. And we've tried Dear Lord, Creator, Good and Kind, and I, I don't know a, an acceptable alternate, but the rest of the hymn is so powerful. Uh, forgive our feverish ways. Uh, let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Mm. So it's interesting, and I hadn't really put this together until I started thinking about the question when you had told me that you might ask it, that that undergraduate college where I went and had to take a religion course and was wooed back into the fold of religion was Guilford College, which is a Quaker institution, uh. and John Greenleaf Whittier is a Quaker, yeah. and that Quaker sense of order and peace and still dues of quietness yeah. and breathe through the earthquake, wind and fire, oh still small voice of calm. All that was sort of pervasive mm. in the spirituality of that atmosphere. Mm. And I think that had a profoundly shaping impact on me. Mm. That's great. What hymn do you turn to for comfort? I am very deeply touched by George Crowley's uh, Breathe On, uh, Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart. And there was a stanza in that, in the old red hymn, hymnal in the Presbyterian Church, that I dearly loved, 
that disappeared from the 1990 Blue Hymnal. And I'm so glad that we were able to put it back Mm. in Glory to God. And it's the stanza that says, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul away. Mm. We don't have to have melodramatic acts for there to be revelation. Revelation can come in a still, small voice. What is your favorite piece of music? This is tricky because I would have to say that the the song I am happiest when I hear it come up on my iPod when I'm out jogging is Trisha Yearwood's The Song Remembers When, Mm. country-western ballad. (laughs) And I just love the way that song captures an experience that I think all of us have, Mm -hmm. which is there are certain songs that are indelibly tied to certain moments of our lives. So so there's a a lyric in there that even if the whole world has forgotten, the song remembers when. Mm -hmm. And when that song starts playing, the memories come flooding back. So I like it both because it honors the way that song is evocative of memory for us. But then I also, as a text writer, really appreciate the way writers of country-western ballads can use regular meter and regular rhyme scheme and tell a story Mm. in ways that can be gripping and memorable. Oh, that's great. What book other than the Bible has most shaped your faith or influenced your vocation? It would be Paul Tillich's The Courage to Be. It is the book that I had to read for that sophomore religion required course at Guilford College that I did not want to have to take because I thought I was too intellectually sophisticated for religion. And that book blew me out of the water by renaming faith as The Courage to Be. So we all have moments, well, I think many of us at least have moments when we don't feel that courage to keep on keeping on. We struggle with depression or with doubt or with simple fatigue. And we feel as if we're walking down a dark corridor with all the doors closed and can't see our way forward. And then something happens when through no rational explanatory process, we feel ourselves empowered to take that next next step forward until it calls that the courage to be. He calls that being grasped by the power of being. And rather than talking about a parent god up in the sky who is dictating and controlling, Tillich talks about a power that undergirds all being and that offers us these experiences of courage. That was a language of faith that made sense Mm. to me. Mm. So using a Tillichian vocabulary brought me back into an understanding of what religion was doing and what God talk might be doing in sort of fresh and imaginative ways. Which hymn would you like to have sung at your funeral? It's interesting that you mentioned Shall Tribulation or Distress, because Mm. that hymn of Sally's and mine 
is really an affirmation that I would want mm. to have sung at my funeral. It's one that my mother wants sung at hers. Oh. I don't know that I will be able to sing it yeah. there, or I, I would love to hear others sing it. In fact, they now use it at many of the memorial services at the retirement community where she lives, oh, wow. which is quite lovely. Their chaplain has a beautiful singing voice and does that. Mm. So, so that's one that I would like if it were a group of people that could sing it easily. It's yeah. not the most accessible melody to yeah. people who have not had the experience of it in other contexts. So if I were looking for something more instantly recognizable and singable, it would be Now Thank We All Our God. Uh. That marvelous Marinkart text with the Catherine Winkworth translation. Mm. You know, Guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and mm. the next. Mm. I would love for that affirmation to be sung. I, I love the word perplexed in that. I just think it's 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 an, such an unusual word to come across. In well, that's, that's the brilliance it's, of Catherine Winkworth. Yeah. You know, and that's another reason I would like that song, because one of the things that, that I have done in my text writing career is write translations, and that has given me an enormous respect for the gifted translators mm -hmm. of our hymnic heritage who very often don't get the credit that's due. We talk about the original author and fail to recognize the immense creativity and sensitivity that is put into writing a good translation, without which we wouldn't have access yeah. to the genius of the original author. And Catherine Winkworth is, is one of those whom I most admire. Mm -hmm. and, and that deft rhyme of perplexed and next is just one example. Yeah. Well, Mel, it's been it's been a real joy getting to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing about your your life and your and your vocation as a hymn writer. Um, I'm deeply grateful. Ben, I tell people when they say, "What well, could you tell me a little bit about your hymn?" It's sort of like going up to someone and saying, "Do you happen to have any pictures of your grandchildren?" <laughs> they answer, "Of course, I would love to." Thank mm -hmm. you for the opportunity. Thank you. Voices United, a congregational song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody, with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise, and Whitworth University alum Lane King for editing and production. <laughs>